When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On the 17th of January 1649, in a well-decorated room of Kilkenny Castle, the leaders of the Irish Catholic Confederation met with James Butler, the Protestant Marquess of Ormond and Charles I's chosen Lord Deputy of Ireland. After months of fierce negotiations, the opposing factions had finally agreed a compromise which would see them unite against the forces of the English Parliament still in Ireland. The men in this room had been at war on and off for most of a decade. A previous peace treaty had not lasted, and Ormond had gone into exile once already. Neither side was entirely united or especially happy with this second Ormond peace. There were still Confederates who hoped for a return to an entirely Catholic Ireland, and there were many Ormondists who were disgusted at any compromise with those they saw as rebellious and barbarous Catholics. But with King Charles in the custody of the radical Protestant soldiers in England, and now on trial for his life, both sides had a shared enemy, and a tenuous compromise had been reached. Those present in that room in Kilkenny Castle were overwhelmed by emotion. The chairman of the Confederate General Assembly predicted that the agreement would, quote, restore this nation in its former luster. Kilkenny Castle had been Ormond's family seat before the rebellion, so finally returning as a welcome guest must have surely added to his emotion. Ormond declared to his Catholic audience that, There are no bounds to your hopes. And then he signed what has become known as the Second Ormond Peace. At the stroke of a pen, the Marquess of Ormond became the head of a powerful coalition, which controlled the majority of the island of Ireland, and whose armies outnumbered their opponents. Less than two years later, he will go into exile once again, his coalition defeated by internal division and external invasion. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 3, Episode 3, The Battle of Rathmines. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. As always, I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin, I'd like to thank new additions to the House of Lords, the Marquis of Nova Scotia, Scott Sheffert, Baron Duja, and Gregory John Murray has been promoted to the Earl of Inverness. 
Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. The new Marquis of Nova Scotia and the Earl of Inverness can also listen to the bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we saw how the new English Republic stabilised the ship of state. Notable royalists captured in the Second Civil War faced revolutionary courts, and the leaders were executed. The remaining royalist holdouts within England finally surrendered. The threat of further revolution from the left, from levellers inside and out with the army, was suppressed after their civilian leaders were arrested and mutineers among the soldiers were crushed. By the end of May, the preparations for Oliver Cromwell's expedition to Ireland were firmly underway. Today, we'll look at the situation in Ireland in the key months before Cromwell set sail. When the Second Ormond Peace was signed on the 17th of January, the strategic map of Ireland was as follows. Ormond's Royalists, who I'll call Royalists or the Allies from here on, now included the majority of the Confederacy's territory and armies, as well as Lord Inchiquin's Protestant soldiers in Munster, and so the Royalists controlled the majority of the island and almost all the southern ports. The English Parliament held Dublin under Major General Michael Jones, and also further north, the city of Derry was held by Charles Coote, the son of the elder Charles Coote who had died since the rebellion broke out, and the town of Dundalk was held by George Monk, who will be very important in the future, but not so much now, more shortly. Also in the north, the Scottish army, largely made up of Covenanter soldiers and surviving colonists, was still kicking about. They held on to Belfast, Carrickfergus, and Coleraine. Unaligned with any of these factions was Owen Roe O'Neill's Ulster Gaelic army. The Royalists were soon joined by Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who arrived in the harbour of Kinsale in the south of Ireland with a small Royalist fleet. Ormond urged Rupert to use his ships to aid the war at sea, raiding parliamentary shipping and, when the time was right, blockading Dublin and intercepting Cromwell's invasion. But Rupert's fleet was low on supplies, and he doesn't seem to have done much other than stir up divisions in Kinsale between Catholics and Protestants. When the news of the regicide broke, it was received with horror. The Second Norman Peace and the Royalist Alliance it heralded were not popular by any stretch of the imagination. These factions had been fighting each other with a brutality unmatched by anywhere else in Europe except perhaps in the Thirty Years' War within the Holy Roman Empire. There were many more sceptics among the new allies than there were firm believers. The regicide helped fuse this coalition together, at least a little bit, for a little while. The English parliamentarians had just shown why a pan-island alliance was necessary, even if it was hard to swallow. The dramatic act brought more people into the fold. Religious and ethnic hatred was temporarily eclipsed by horror at the regicide, and many parliamentarian soldiers and some entire garrisons defected to Ormond's mongrel royalists. In mid-February, the Belfast Presbytery denounced the regicide, and in a stark contrast to the cautious middle ground the Scottish government in Edinburgh was taking, the presbyters urged all Ulster Scots to refuse to serve with or assist Parliament's generals in Ulster. This split the Ulster Scots into two camps, resolutioners who supported Charles II, and remonstrants who did not and favoured the English Parliament. Many of the Presbyterian soldiers now threw their lot in with Ormond. In mid-May, a parliamentary fleet caught up with Prince Rupert at Kinsale, and successfully blockaded his ships within the harbour. 
the royalist presence at sea was now firmly limited to privateers based in Wexford. But Parliament steadily cleared the sea of these pirates over the following months, and kept supply lines to Dublin open. Meanwhile, in the north, Coote's garrison in Derry was besieged by the Lagan army. 7,000 men surrounded its walls, but Coote was a competent defender, and the Irish had no artillery. So despite the sudden and dramatic return of the Lagan army commander, Robert Stewart, who had been imprisoned in the Tower of London, escaped, and then made the dangerous trip back to the fight, they couldn't do much. Early in July, they will be joined by George Monroe, the nephew of Robert Monroe, and who had been sent back to Britain to aid the engagers. After playing his part in that disastrous campaign, and then the subsequent Scottish Civil War, he was back, and with his uncle imprisoned in London after a mutiny among anti-engager troops, Charles II had appointed him the commander of the remaining Ulster Scots. After securing control of Belfast and Carrickfergus, this Monroe arrived at the head of 2,000 Scots to aid the siege of Derry. Unfortunately, they also didn't have any siege artillery, but the guns they did bring were powerful enough to sink the supply ships sailing up the river to aid Derry. Coote was going nowhere, unless he found an unlikely friend, and an unlikely friend he did find. As mentioned, the only notable holdout from the Royalist Alliance, who was not explicitly aligned with the English parliamentarians, was Owen Rowe O'Neill, the Confederate General of the Ulster Army. He'd been left politically isolated after the signing of the Second Ormond Peace. His patron, the Papal Nuncio Archbishop Rinaccini, had lost the battle over the treaty. Rinaccini's previously dominant authority over the Irish bishops collapsed, and as they showed interest in the negotiations, he remained in Galway, watching bitterly. When news of the agreement reached Galway, the town erupted into celebrations, with the firing of artillery, the ringing of church bells, and, to quote a contemporary, quote, great, great drinking, end quote. Rinaccini, a bit petulantly, ordered the church bells to be silenced, but I've no idea if the party in Galwegians paid any attention to the Durr clergyman. The nuncio threw in the towel, and by the end of February, he would leave Ireland, never to return. But even after Rinaccini left Ireland, negotiations with O'Neill stalled. For O'Neill, he was deeply opposed to any deal which resulted in anything but an entirely Catholic Ireland. This was obviously something Ormond could not and would not promise. But among the Royalists, there was plenty of lingering resentment, suspicion, and not a little bit of discrimination. The Confederate Civil War, with O'Neill and the now-Royalists on opposite sides, had only been the previous year. They simply didn't trust him. The mostly old English Royalists also looked down on the Gaelic O'Neill and his army, and they worried that welcoming him into the fold would just lead to him pillaging supplies and ignoring orders. Plus, O'Neill's army was huge. It would be an incredibly valuable asset in the war, but perhaps he would be more dangerous within the Royalist camp than outside it. This reluctance from the Royalists did not help win O'Neill over. So, O'Neill refused to join the cause, and it would have been bad enough if he'd just sat things out. But O'Neill didn't just reject Ormond's overtures, he actively prioritised fighting the Royalists over the parliamentarians. He went so far as to sign a three-month truce with Monk and Coote, promising them aid in return for supplies. Meanwhile, 
Ormond's new alliance began to advance on Dublin. Several of its outlying towns and castles were captured, Drogheda's parliamentary garrison surrendered and almost entirely swapped sides, Dundalk, Newry, Carlingford and Trim were all taken by the Allies and secured. When Dundalk fell to Ormond, Monk was invited back to London to explain himself and why he'd made an alliance with the papist rebel O'Neill. Monk managed to talk his way out of any punishment and he stayed in the army, though he wouldn't play a role in the upcoming Irish campaign. O'Neill himself stayed a healthy distance from Ormond's main force and headed north, to Derry, where his remaining English friend, Coote, was still under siege. At the approach of O'Neill's force, both Stuart and Monroe decided they couldn't risk a battle, and so they lifted the siege. Monroe retreated back to Belfast, and Stuart moved south towards Connacht. Grateful for the assist, Coote plied O'Neill with ammunition and food, and forwarded O'Neill's requests for religious and political concessions to London, who, of course, dismissed them out of hand. Ormond was, understandably, furious with O'Neill, but he never stopped trying to win him over. He told O'Neill's nephew, who acted as the go-between in their negotiations, that, quote, I believe without O'Neill joining us, it will be disastrous for us. The English parliamentarians have no respect or real use for O'Neill, end quote. Ormond would be proven right in time, but too late for the Irish cause. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? Besides Derry. Dublin was now the last significant Irish town held by Parliament, and so Ormond now turned his allied army towards the capital. 
Speaking of that alliance, it was an impressive achievement, on the surface at least. As Ormond advanced on Dublin at the end of July, he had behind him, both literally and politically, a coalition of Old English Catholics, Gaelic Catholics, Anglo-Irish Protestants, New English Protestants, and Presbyterian Ulster Scots. It was a significant force of at least six to 8,000 men. Ormond informed agents of Charles II that he actually commanded about 10,000 infantry and 3,000 cavalry, which was a wild exaggeration meant to entice the king to Ireland. The presence of Charles on Irish soil would, Ormond hoped, smooth over royalist divisions and increase defections from Parliament. Until Charles arrived, though, targeting Dublin was Ormond's next step. If they could take the capital, besides the obvious benefits of controlling the kingdom's largest city and the seat of its government, it would close off the last major port on the east coast from parliamentary ships, and neutralise the largest remaining parliamentary force in Ireland. It would also be a dramatic and unignorable rallying cry for royalists in Scotland and Ireland, and almost certainly secure Ireland as Charles II's destination. However, capturing it would be no easy feat. For starters, Dublin's sheer size made it difficult to besiege. Ormond's force was simply not big enough to properly surround it, and even if he could, it had a major port to secure supplies, and without Rupert's fleet there was no way to prevent resupply by sea. Secondly, taking it by storm would be very difficult. It had already been very well fortified before the Irish War broke out, and after eight years of war, its defences were impressive. And of course, the Allies didn't have much in the way of siege artillery. But despite all these disadvantages, Ormond had to act decisively in order to keep his shaky coalition together, and there were few other options. The Royalists held most of Ireland at this point, there was also the hope that the presence of a royalist army within sight of the walls might stir up divisions within the city and spur defections from the garrison. If the opportunity arose to take the city, Ormond wanted to be ready to seize it. Remember that all of this was taking place against a backdrop of the looming English response. News filtered across the Irish Sea. An expedition to Ireland had been announced. Cromwell had been appointed to lead it. A number of mutinies had broken out within the army, but then the news came that they'd been suppressed. Forces were heading to the English coast. With no sign of royalist uprisings in England, and Scotland being noticeably quiet, Ormond and the Allies knew that Cromwell had to be on the way soon. But, and this was key, they didn't know where he would arrive. Dublin and its surrounding ports were the obvious choice, but the southern ports of Munster were almost as likely. Because resentment among Inchiquin's garrisons in Munster was incredibly high. They resented their commander's defection. They hated this devil's deal with Catholic rebels, and if supporting the king meant Catholic concessions, then perhaps the English Parliament would better serve Protestant interests. These grumbling garrisons held key harbours along the southeast coast, and losing them back to Parliament without a shot being fired would be a disaster. So on the 27th of July, Inchiquin, who was with Ormond outside Dublin, was dispatched back to Munster with three regiments of cavalry. His objective was to secure the defences of this key region and secure the loyalty of his men. But this left Ormond in a bind. His army continued to isolate the capital, 
capturing outlying castles and villages as they went, but the long-term goal of the siege was now in question. Capturing Dublin would have been a long shot before he was forced to split his army, and now it looked almost impossible. Ormond considered lifting the siege and withdrawing north to Drogheda, but his subordinate generals persuaded him against this cautious plan. Instead, the decision was taken to capture Bagatraff Castle, which sat about a mile from Dublin's walls, which overlooked part of the bay and would increase pressure on Dublin's defenders. A force of between 1,000 and 1,500 infantry were sent to secure the castle. Jones had anticipated that Ormond would aim to take it, so, not having the resources to properly defend it, he ordered it partly demolished. Ormond's force would have to take possession of the castle and repair what defences they could during the night, and then on the following day, the rest of Ormond's force would move into position. And so it was that on the evening of the 1st of August, the force set out, but in the darkness they got lost. There is some persuasive evidence that their local guides deliberately misled the royalists, found in post-war court documents where their service to Parliament at Raff Mines is mentioned as a mark in their favour. But whether it was due to treachery or just a sincere mistake, a march of less than a mile took most of the night. By the time they found the castle, it was almost dawn. Ormond arrived soon after them to find the castle unrepaired or even fully secured. Noticing that Jones's forces were active and appeared to be getting ready for a fight, he considered withdrawing the force at Bagatraff back to Rathmines. But if he did, he'd lose any chance to capture this valuable position. He'd shown his hand, and Jones certainly wouldn't let him try again. And so he instead ordered the rest of his army to come forward. The Marquis had been up all night while the march took place, and, not expecting that Jones could do anything until later in the morning, he delegated the preparations for battle to his major generals, and retired to the camp at Rathmines to get a few hours' sleep. He was rudely awoken around 9am by the sound of gunfire. Because Jones had indeed noticed the royalist movement, he also guessed their intention. And most importantly of all, he realised how vulnerable the royalist army was, strung out along the road from Rathmines to Bagatrath. In his later report to Parliament, he recorded how he gathered about 1,200 cavalry and 4,000 infantry, and advanced on Bagatraff Castle as quickly as he could. The Royalist cavalry tried to intercept, but was quickly routed. Their commander was killed, and though the infantry stood its ground, they were quickly overwhelmed by the volume of fire and began to fall back, some of them in order, but many just fleeing for their lives. Jones pressed his advantage, recaptured Bagatraff, and he just kept moving. He chased the retreating royalists back down the road towards their camp at Rathmines, sweeping up the reinforcements as they came up the road. It was this gunfire which woke Ormond, and to his credit, he quickly raced to try and rally his army. The Munster infantry advanced into the parliamentarians and attempted to form a defensive line, but Jones kept the momentum up and gave them no room to breathe, and the royalists just kept getting pushed back. Ormond sent word to a contingent of soldiers on the other side of the River Liffey and ordered them to advance on Jones's rearguard. This force was made up of 2,500 men and would have made a difference, but their officer, Lord Dillon, refused. Such a manoeuvre would require him to turn his back on Dublin, and the rest of the garrison was still inside. He'd most likely end up sandwiched between Jones's force and whatever came rushing out of Dublin. Ormond's final hopes were snuffed out when the Parliamentarian cavalry, 
having chased off their royalist counterparts, faced no opposition as they charged the flank and rear of the struggling infantry. Those soldiers fully engaged soon surrendered. Those who could escape ran for their lives. This included Ormond, who fell back with whatever forces he could rally, but he was forced to leave behind the artillery he had, the supplies and the baggage, and his personal correspondence. After two hours of fighting, Ormond's entire force had either been killed, captured, or fled the field. Jones reported to Parliament that around 4,000 Royalists had been killed in the fighting or the chase afterwards, and that he had exactly 2,517 prisoners, whereas the Parliamentarians had many wounded, but he claimed had only lost 20. For the Royalists, Rathmines was a disaster. Although Jones claimed to have killed and captured thousands of Royalists, Ormond did his best to downplay the loss. Writing to Charles, he admitted that it had been a defeat, but they'd lost no more than 600 men, and about half of them had been killed as prisoners. It's hard to understate the importance of the Battle of Rathmines. Lipscomb calls its significance unequivocal, and the turning point of the war in Ireland, which paved the way for what was to follow. Oshukru calls it an unmitigated disaster for the Royalists, and credits Jones for recognising an invaluable opportunity to catch the Royalists in a vulnerable position and deftly executing a counterattack. Indeed, more than one historian has quipped that the most decisive battle of the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland occurred before Cromwell even left English soil. That said, some historians have suggested that the defeat at Rathmines was not as militarily devastating as it has later been seen. Ormond's force wasn't entirely destroyed, and he managed to rally a sizeable number of survivors. He also had the rest of Ireland to, theoretically, draw recruits and supplies from in order to rebuild. Likewise, though Jones attempted to bluff recently captured garrisons like Drogheda into surrendering, he mostly failed, and he remained stuck on the defensive, unable to follow up his victory at Raff Mines by chasing Ormond down. Whatever the casualty numbers were, the real blow of Raff Mines was political. The morale of Ormond's coalition was simply too fragile to handle a defeat like Raff Mines. It raised questions about his competence as a military leader, and it widened the cracks within the Royalist coalition. Many Protestant soldiers defected back to Parliament afterwards, those who remained were looked at suspiciously by their Catholic comrades, and in reverse, the Catholic Lord Dillon's refusal to come to the army's aid did nothing to convince the Protestants that their allies were trustworthy. As we'll see more next week, the defeat would ensure that the Royalists would fight a defensive war of sieges. Cromwell would not fight a large-scale battle throughout his entire nine months on the island. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, sorry it was not a good episode for your namesake, the Marquess of Dorset, Thomas Kessler, and the Earl of Norfolk, Ross Templeton. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.